Let's begin today in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8, in verse 28. And Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things pleasing unto him. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about Jesus as the son, as a son to the father, and the pattern that God the father is to his son Jesus. And, and, and apply this to our life today in terms of uh, being a father. Jesus followed the pattern of his father. Uh, he, he did not do anything. In fact, if you back up a couple of verses to John chapter 5 and verse 19... John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Jesus here makes a remarkable statement that he, he doesn't do anything on his own. He, he looks up to God, his Father, and he looks to see what God the Father is doing, and, and God the Father shows him because he loves him, and they're in communion with one another. And, and, uh, and Jesus said, this is what you want me to do? And the Father says, yes, and that's what he does. And he said, I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. The, that's why that John 14.10 says that, uh, that the works he did, the, it was the Father in him doing his works. That was the proof that the Father had sent him, was the works that the Father was doing through him. And he did some pretty amazing things. So that there is a pattern and a precedent here from God the Father to God the Son. Jesus received his teachings from the Father and he received his successes from the Father and he received his patterns from the Father. I just read a book called um, Momentum by uh, Eric Johnson. He's a young pastor in um, Redding, California. And he comes from uh, about, I think he said, six generations of Pentecostal preachers. And he says, uh, uh, I didn't feel like I needed to reinvent the wheel. When it comes to ministry, he says, I have all this inheritance. He said, I call it an inheritance because... Why do I need to go and experience all this, these things? Why don't I just 
ask somebody. I've got all this momentum. And the name of his book was called a Generational Momentum. Where the father tells the son what he should do and the son respects and honors the father, seeks to please the father, and he carries it out. And it's generational momentum. Then the grandson picks it up from the father and the grandfather, and, and uh, uh, it's the same thing as Psalm 145. I think it's verse 4. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation will praise your works to another. It goes from one generation to the next. And you need this as an inheritance. You need this as something that you don't have to put together, experience and earn all over again. You don't have to repeat the same failures and Recycle the same experiences. You don't, have, you don't have to take that much time. You just tap the wisdom of the fathers. I was, uh, this, this was about 14, 15 years ago, and uh, we, at our house, we had a small dining room. I, I mean, I guess it wasn't that small. It, but we had, uh, we had four children. When you sit all four children around the dining table, it was really cramped. Then they start bringing home their friends, and, and like you can't even get up from the table. And uh, uh, I, I wasn't sure what we were going to do. And today, though, if you go to our dining room today, you'll see this huge dining room. Half our house is a dining room. Because last Sunday, we had 28 people for dinner. I mean, that's more than some restaurants. <laughs> and Jan does all this, and she loves doing it. But Because now we got not only four children and their spouses and eight grandkids and one expecting, which they need, they need more room. And so we got all, plus the friends. So you got 25 to 30 people. So we have this huge dining room, big oak Amish table with all these oak chairs sitting around it. It's, it's great. But how did we do that? One word, inheritance. <laughs> Cha-ching! <laughs> yeah, that's the only way I could have done that. We put an entire addition on our house and extended the back of the house out by, I don't know, maybe, maybe four or 500 feet uh, square, <laughs> just to be clear on that. But uh, Psalm 69, verse 35, gives us this same idea. Do we have the... Now, listen to the way he puts this. God will save Zion. He will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. And the descendants or the children of his servants then inherit it. God 
saves them, builds them up, and the children don't have to go through those experiences. They just they inherit that. There's some things you cannot have without an inheritance. You, you don't live long enough. You don't have enough skills. You need that inheritance. And so this, this pastor writes and he says, I, I have this incredible generational momentum that's built up for six generations. I have an inheritance. My fathers have given it to me. This is at the root of what Jesus is talking about. He says, I, I don't have to go through things and learn things in order to understand things. I go to my fathers. And they will give, my heavenly father will guide me. That's the idea here. Look at Deuteronomy 4. Look at this verse. We put this one up here. This is an incredible statement by Moses. Out of heaven he made you to hear his voice. He, that he might instruct you and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And listen to this. And because he loved the fathers, he chose the children. Wow. He loved the fathers. He chose the children because of that. I mean, you just have to let that rattle around in your brain a little bit. But that is an inheritance. That my, the relationship of my fathers has impacted the way God deals with me. And then here's one, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things that just we don't know, and he doesn't tell us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Secret things belong to the Lord, but what He's reveals belongs to us and the children. God has taught us some things. And so they don't have to struggle for 10 years trying to figure something out. God has taught us some things. Let me just pass this on to you. So I have four children, eight grandchildren, one on the way. I just pass this on. You don't look. Here's what the verse says. Here's the way. Here's what I have come to a conclusion on. There is a generational momentum. The grandchildren pick up on that. They get it from the parents they, who got it from their parents. One generation to another will praise your works. An example is, is with David. Now, David wasn't a perfect father. In fact, you might say he was a very imperfect father. But 1 Kings 2.33 says, On David and his children be the peace of the Lord forever. On David and his children be peace. David fought wars and battles so the next generation could live in peace. In fact, Solomon never fought a battle. His father David fought all of them. One of our early presidents, John Adams, said, I study politics and war so that my sons can study math 
and science. Here's some things that we can pass on that our children don't have to earn. They, they inherit this. A good name. Proverbs 22.1 A good name is to be chosen over great riches. What kind of an inheritance would you leave? A good name is better than great riches. James Kennedy told about how hundreds of people named Hitler was in the New York City phone book at the beginning of World War II. And a few months after the war broke out, there were no Hitlers in the New York City phone book. The name is like, ooh, they got their names changed. How much is a good name worth? He said, a good name is better to be chosen than great riches. I don't have to learn everything that my father learned. I can inherit some of it. Inheritance gives you an advantage. It gives you a head start. And the greatest of our inheritance is not money. Jesus said, I, everything I do comes from the father. Everything I speak comes from the father. I don't have to know and study and then uh, uh, acquire a knowledge of all things. I can just let the Father tell me what I need to know today and that's what I will say. That's the way he lived. Here's a verse in John 8, 28. Let's pull this one up. John 8, 28. Talking about the best teacher. I do nothing out of myself or from myself, but as my Father has taught me. What is the best teacher? Is experience the best teacher? And I'm going to say no to that because number one, it takes a lot longer and number two, it takes a lot more suffering than if you just learn it from your Father. Suppose my son <clears throat> comes to me and he says, <clears throat> he's been, I've seen very little of him, say, for about eight years, and I'm like, where have you been? He said, Dad, I've been building something. I have invented something. You wouldn't believe it. This is going to make me a rich man. What is it? He said, well, I've got this thing, <clears throat> and and." And it's, it's transportation is what it's going to end up being. And it's not got a motor on it. It's got two huge wheel, wheels, and I've uh, learned how to put spokes in them. And it's got handlebars, and it's, I put the brakes on the handlebars. And this thing is awesome. And I, it took me eight years to figure this out, but I got it. And I, what would I say? I would say, dude, you just wasted eight years. That's called a bicycle. I, I can give you one for your birthday. They've been here for a hundred years. Now, do you see the point there? Why would he do that? Would that be foolish? And how much more foolish is it for children to go and spend their lives going through all these experiences and going through all these headaches and learning things by experience? Oh, I don't want to ever do that again. When they could have asked their father and save themselves a life of tears. We listen, we learn, we obey, 
and we stop wasting our years relearning the lessons of the previous generation. Our family history is not to be discovered as much as it is to be built on. My ceiling is to be my son's floor. In other words, my ceiling, my peak, my limit that I have reached is where my son steps in and picks up. That's his foundation. That's his beginning. Where I end is his beginning. That's generational momentum. Children cannot accomplish the unprecedented unless they are confident in the well-established. To go on to where I did not go, he has to start where I ended. And that is never more true than in the area of the Christian faith. You can't go through 10 years trying to figure out the issue of evolution. If you go to your parents and let them tell you, we can't answer all the questions, son, but I can tell you this. The God of heaven created who you are and this world in which we live in. And I don't have all the scientific answers, but you build on that and you'll be fine. God is our creator. And Jesus is our savior and our redeemer. Build on that. Don't go back and study comparative religions and try to figure it out all out. I got a PhD in comparative religions. So, you could have asked your grandma and saved yourself a ton of money. We leave with our children and grandchildren the stories of answered prayers. Turn to Psalm 78. Let me give you this verse. Psalm 78. In Psalm 78... And particularly, we, we would start with verse 4. He said, we, we will not hide them from the children. But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And His might. And the wonders He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. See, he's established a testimony. He's got stories. What are these stories for? He's put them together in the book called the Scriptures. And he says, they are to teach to the children, Psalm 78, verse 6, so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, would arise and tell them to their children so that they would all set their hope on God and not forget the works of God. You know what our next vision here for our church is? And I, I can kind of see, it, see us moving in that direction, is that when you go into that nursery over there, you go down that hallway and the nursery's on the left, 
We want to go right straight through that door and build a beautiful children's center. Have a children's Bible college where they go through the Old Testament, they get the stories, they get the testimonies, they find out how God helped people who were hopeless and helpless, and they emerge when they're in the uh, tw 10 or 12 years old with a certificate because they graduated from Children's Bible College, meaning they understood the stories and they, uh, and they got, gained a knowledge of the stories that our fathers have left us. And they will set their hope in God so that whatever comes their way in life, they are now ready to cope with the hope they got from God. And that's what we want to do over there. In coming months, you'll be hearing more about that. That is my vision from God, and I want to, I want to see that done. The kingdom expanded into this next generation. It is, the, it is the mind of Christ, it is the will of God, and we will do it. We can leave a deposit and an inheritance, a momentum-building faith and hope in God as an example, and a legacy that will serve as a ceiling. This is our floor. We will reach a peak. But that peak, that ceiling, will be their floor and their foundation and their beginning for the new life that comes in the 21st century. There'll be a people who have their hope in God. That's what fathers do. They leave an inheritance. I read a touching story just to give you an idea of what a father's heart is like. Some weeks ago, Calvin Coolidge, who was our 30th president of the United States, started in 1923. Actually, he was a vice president with uh, Warren Harding, and when Harding died suddenly in office, then Calvin Coolidge became the president. He was, a, from all reports, a good Christian man, represented the middle class, a family man. He had two sons. Uh, one's name was John, one's name was Calvin Jr. Back to, um, he looks like his dad, Calvin Jr. This is, I think he's seven years old here. Calvin Jr. at 16 years of age was playing tennis when his father was the president. And uh, he's bruised his foot and it became infected. And he... He was taken to Walter Reed Hospital, and there the infection just, just spread so quickly. This was like in the early 20s when we didn't have the same kind of medicines and, and, and practices we have today. And before, before they even knew what happened, the guy, he, he was close to death. By the time his father got there, uh, Calvin Jr., had only minutes to live. And they told the dad, they said, Mr. President, we're sorry, but we think he's only got minutes. And the President of the United States knelt by his, the side of his son's bed and just wept. You could hear him out in the hall and people's hearts were just broken. And then he stood up and he took his son in his arms and he said, I'll see you in heaven. 
and the boy died. When it came time for him to run, he was so popular. They said, Mr. President, the nomination is yours. The office is yours. We All we need is your go-ahead. Just give us the green light. And he said, I, I don't want to run for president. He said, why? This, the highest office in the land is yours for the taking. I, I don't want to run for president. And he didn't. And I forget who succeeded him, but, but he went back to um, small midtown, western midtown, and lived out his life. And um, died just like six or seven years later. But a reporter came to him not long after that, and he got the definitive answer, which others had suspected. They said to him, um, Mr. President, why did you not want to run again? And he said, when my son died, I didn't want to be the president anymore. It just left me. Can you imagine not wanting to be the... There, people have, have spent their lives and fortunes trying to be the president. But when his son died, I don't want to be the president anymore. It's like fatherhood damaged ruins dreams unfulfilled. And when I read that, I thought, there's the core of a man. When he's a father, everything he is, he's a father. You take away his fatherhood, you have gone to the core of a man. And what a privilege to be a father. You have duplicated yourself, reproduced yourself. And for some of us, that could be a happy moment. But I, I just saw in that man's answer the heart of God. You understand that when Jesus died on the cross, it's like God closed up shop. You know, darkness came. Why do I need the sun? Darkness came. And Kevin spoke a few weeks ago on the significance of the tearing of the robe, that it's despair. God the Father ripped that veil of the temple, which represented his covering and robe to his people. He ripped that from top, an 80-foot veil from top down to bottom. God ripped his robe. It is as if he said at the death of his son, I don't want to be God anymore. The Trinity is broken in that moment at the cross. How can such a thing be when Jesus the Son forever said, by God, 
why have you forsaken me? Not my Father, but my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, my friend, there is a depth of mystery we will never plumb. As if God said, the loss of my son is the death of me. So let me just give you four quick points here to ponder on this Father's Day. And one is we're looking at the generational momentum illustrated by Jesus as he walks with his father. Uh, at the core of Christianity is the heart of a father. Talking about Father's Day, at the core of the Christian faith is the heart of a father, God the Father. At the heart of the gospel is a father and a son. Take away that kind of analogy and you've lost the Bible and the message of this church. The heart of the father, the heart of the gospel is the heart of the father. He, Jesus taught us to pray, our father who art in heaven. So I just want to make that point that when we're dealing with the Christian faith, you're dealing with that which we call Father at its pure, in its purest sense of the word. But here's a second thing that I would say. And this, this also reveals to us the Father's love for us, the, that His love comes to us. And have you ever had a child uh, sick and it really worried you? Maybe you've actually uh, buried a baby or buried a child. But, or had a child that moved away or perhaps a child that was alienated in affection. Or maybe in a divorce case, a child was taken away. And your heart yearns for that child. Oh, and you want that child so much. The, your very nature is now cut in two. You understand that that is the heart of God for you. Your love for your children is a little microcosm of God's love for you. And when you stray, when you are indifferent to his passion for your life and his desire to give you guidance and wisdom and pass along his wisdom and in, let you inherit his hope and his victories, when he wants to give that to you and you are, you are detached and uninvolved and standing at an arm's length from the God of heaven, think about your children when they are not responding to you or if they are alienated from you and you say, if God feels anything like I feel, if He feels anything toward me like I feel toward my child, what's the first thing you ought to do? You ought to turn and face the Heavenly Father and say, Father, I apologize to you for being so indifferent to love. 
I wonder sometimes if God does not permit some of these situations in life so we can experience His heart. You know how I feel? It's not something you want to just ignore. The Father's love for His Son is not a love you can just put on the shelf. When my son moved to Louisville, he told me, he said, uh, this is some years ago, he said, Dad, I'm, I'm going to go down there. And he was at, originally he was going to school there. And man, every day that my son was in Louisville, I thought of him. Every day. Every hour. And... And he, he brought this girl home from Kentucky. He was dating. She was the uh, daughter of, uh, I think, uh, of like the head of state police in, the, in Kentucky. I mean, so Bud's like, get them tickets fixed. And one day their car, the car broke down. She called her dad. Man, they were there. They, had, they were surrounded by state police in just a minute. <laughs> He's like, wow, this is awesome. When he, when he brought her home, told me about her, I thought, you know, that boy is going to marry a Kentucky girl and move to Kentucky and stay there and raise my grandchildren there. And... And I'm going to see him very little. And oh, oh man. And, and one day he called me up and he said, Dad, I feel like I should come back home and help in the church. And I'm like, whatever God has said, <laughs> that's what thou needest to do. <laughs> oh. What a joy when a father works with, alongside his son. And Jesus just enjoyed every day with the father. In John 8, I always seek to please him. He's always with me. I always seek to do what he says. He tells me something to say, I say it. To do, I do it. And I don't even do anything unless he tells me. Here's a third thing that I just make as an observation building on this. If Jesus built on his father's inheritance, if he just passed on what his father gave him, how much more should we build on your father's faith? Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't build another bicycle. Don't let experience be your best teacher. Let your father be your best teacher. Now, I want to just quickly say here, I know that our fathers are not perfect. Uh, our fathers are not God the Father. Amen? But then we're not Jesus the Son either. <laughs> oh, that's funny.
Well, I'm not God the Father, but then Bud's not Jesus either. So that works out pretty good. But build on his faith. Overlook his perfections and build on his faith. What does he know? Before your father dies, know everything he knows. Suck his brains dry. (laughs) Wait, that wasn't in my notes. Pray that pray he'll live until you know what he knows. Then a fourth thing. What if you what if you don't have a earthly father? Maybe you don't even know where he is. Maybe he has no faith. Maybe he died. Maybe he abandoned you. Now what do you do? Start your own legacy. You be the original DNA of a whole dynasty of faith. You be the foundation, like Abraham. He was his own DNA, and God said, you will be a father of nations. Abraham's faith. That's the way you do it. Depending on the heavenly father, For your inheritance and your wisdom, start all over again.